The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. This is Full Change with Tom Laidlaw. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? It's lovely, lovely uh, Friday, which is an odd day for us. How are you? Yeah, you know what? I'm magical is what I think I am. I had a great event last night. We've talked about it before, the shoulder check event. Yeah. Um, this family started, unfortunately, they lost their son um, about a year ago, I guess it is now, and they started this thing called shoulder check. So physically, I didn't really know what, what it was at first, but you know, they're, they're a hockey family, so there's a shoulder check in hockey. But in this sense, they're using it to reach out to people just to make sure they're okay, particularly young people, but not limited to them. So you touch the person on the shoulder, and there's three sayings you say. I can't remember what it is, but basically just checking in on the person to make sure they're okay. Gotcha. So Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah, we had the father uh, put on a little presentation for two high school hockey teams uh, last night. Our buddy okay. Gary Dorkowitz set it all up. Gary coaches over sure. at Rockland High School. Yep. So good man. It was good. Yep. Gary's a good man. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was um, Mr. Thorson and his son, who was a yeah. goaltender, um, tragically uh, took his own life but with basically with no warning, which was the the, the scary part, right? There was yeah. no, and it's it's yeah. heartbreaking. And uh, the fathers make trying to you know. Yep. Do something positive out of this horrible tragedy. And that's a wonderful thing. And we're actually going to have him on the show to talk yep. about Shoulder Check uh, Foundation. But yeah, it's great that you're supporting that group. And, you know, that's just a wonderful thing he's doing out of, born out of tragedy. Yeah. They had a great event. Their opening event was uh, last uh, August, I think it was, in Stanford at uh, Terry Connors Ice Rink. And they had a lot of guys, a lot of the range of players just showed up on yep. their own there. Uh, great support. The building was packed. Uh, I was really like pleasantly surprised how great it was. Yep. I go to a lot of these events. Not just how many people were there, but uh, the way they put it together. Uh, and uh, yeah, again, it wasn't sitting around crying about things, although they certainly could and be justified to do it. It was really, okay, what are we going to do about things now? How are we going to help improve lives for other people? So, but, but listen, this, this is a, it's, it's a, it seems like it's huge, but it's a small community. You know, with, okay, we're not all pro players, but there's fans, there's yeah. beer leaguers, there's coaches, there's officials. This is a, it's a good community, and it, when the community comes together to do things like this, it's a wonderful, powerful thing, and it's awesome that that this family is doing that. You know that you're involved in it. It was great. Yeah, isn't that true? Like I, I hear that more and more about how hockey, the hockey family is this, you know, really respectful. Everybody's included. Doesn't matter if you're an NHL player or some guy that's driving the Zamboni. Hockey yep. players. That's the great thing about them. They, in most cases, like 99 percent of the time, they just they. I, I myself and other guys talk about. We don't think we're something special. We were very fortunate to play the National Hockey League or whatever level of pro hockey. But as far as we looked at ourselves, like we're just a bunch of muttheads like everybody else. So. Well, you are. But, but you know, <laughs> the thing is, and through my life and probably with yours, you're, you're a New York Ranger. Obviously, I'm just a, a beer leaguer and a coach. But it's always great when you meet someone that's like, oh, they're a hockey guy. 
Like, oh, okay, yeah. so they're going to be, you know, they're going to be cool. You know, you know, okay, that's yeah. a hockey guy. All right, he's a hockey guy. Great. That's awesome. You know, I got a good person here. So that's that's really cool. It's wonderful that the community does stuff like this. You know, a funny saying, I was in an event this was a year ago. It's funny you say that about a hockey guy. Somebody said that they were describing this man that we were going to meet, and they didn't kind of describe his personality. They said, right. he's a cat guy. He's a cat person. Yes. Uh, so he's a weirdo. <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, it's true. We think we got a guy that works in our development here. And uh, I saw him, and he had tears in his eyes. And I said, "You okay?" He says, "Yeah, my cat died." And I'm thinking, oh, "Let's take a your well, dog person." The, yeah, well, growing up on the farm too, like we had the cats would go up in the yeah, when it was cold, they go up in the engine there to get warm, and you turn the yeah. You said this on one episode. You said that like the the, the cows would stomp on their heads too and yeah. accidentally kill them, which is terrible. Well, I'm I'm not a cat guy, Tom, but we Christine got a cat a couple of months ago. I just, I was not involved in the decision-making process or any of it. In fact, I was vehemently against it and we have one and the cat's all right. I mean, the cat's kind of a dick. That's kind of a dick, but it's also all right, you know? Yeah, I, I should be careful. If, if people love cats, uh, I totally understand it. Well, maybe I don't, but uh, <laughs> again, I just grew up with the whole thing. Like you mentioned about the cow stepping on the cat. Sometimes it wouldn't kill the cat totally, but it was, so it's laying there in pain. So we have to cut back with a shovel and finish off. Oof. So I just grew up with, I just grew up with, like, cats were never allowed in the house. They were there to uh, kill the mice in the barn. Yep. So, because the mice would eat the bit, binder twine on the bales. And uh, so it's just, we just viewed them as their, another animal. Wait, the, the mice would eat the twine, but not the hay? Yeah. I, I, I understand the concept, but that's, you'd find the mice that, you know, the, the binder twine was broken because of the mice. So, wow, weird. Well, well, that's Canadian life for you, man. Yeah. Well, I talked so about, uh, we, oh, so go ahead. We got to get about show here. Talk about no, no. Yeah, I was gonna say, what do you? What else is? What do you got coming on this weekend? I do know that uh, surprise to, uh, well, to anyone listening. I know you're involved with the Rangers. Do a lot of events. I know that next week you have a big event. We'll talk about that after it happens. But I know you're you're working with a certain local team next week at their practice. That's right. What's the name of that? The Westwood what? what what's the? No, no. You're working with the Saints organization now. I don't know oh. if their their Mike coaches are going to be okay with you being on the ice with their kids because it's you know it's a high level organization. But I think you'll you'll probably fit in all right with it with the Saints and their their coaches. You, I hardly ever get on the ice now. So when I get I like Bambi on ice when I first go there. It's like, <laughs> I have to hold on to the boards when I'm getting. Well, how about this? The kids will appreciate you being there in your jersey, and you can just go talk to each kid and be your charming tough yeah, label. Yeah, no, totally. You know what they all get a kick out of, too? I've got a wood stick that I use, and they're all looking at me like, what is that? Like, you should, oh, man. You know what you should do is you should let them hold it and try to take yeah. a shot with it because this is probably 30 pounds, you know? I know. I did that uh, with a high school team one time. Uh, I was afraid that it was going to break, though, so they like, sawed us. It's probably like 30 years old now. Can you well, <laughs> well, you're going to be on the ice. Uh, on the ice with my mites organization, yeah. so it's like worlds colliding here at, at Sportorama. So it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun event next week, and I'm looking. That's how we met. We were at uh, Fritz Dino Ice Rink too, right? Rip, Rip Fritz, but yeah. So, but this will, this should be fun. This is uh, you know a couple of years later now, or or a year and a half later, and it'll be fun. As the kids will get a kick. I know my son Thomas will get a kick out of you being out there. Yeah, great memories of Sportorama too. Great memories. I, I, well, you know, it's come up several times on the show, you and Dave Silk, and we, you know, hey, Silky, thanks for listening, but I, we want to hear the story, and, and still not yet, so. We're going to have to do an X-rated show for tell that story, okay? We can't. John, yeah, we, we need. What do we, where do we rate this? This is a G? This is probably family-friendly. Jonathan Jones needs, in Michigan needs to hear what happened here, and I know, I'm sure Coach Nate Brown of Minnesota also wants to know the story about Sportorama, because it's, you know, it's it's legendary, but we, we still haven't heard it, so. I think Jonathan Jones knows the story. So he calls all the time. He sends me texts where he breaks down the uh, the podcast. He listens to the good points and the bad points. Oh, he has me. Yeah, he, he does well. We just tell more sexually related stories that he gets a kick out of. But, uh, but what are his his notes are like? Let Tom Smith 
speak more, right? That's what he says. Well, I know. Yeah, no, you, it's. I tell him a lot of stories. We uh, we met because uh, when I was uh, agent in Detroit, just outside Detroit, I worked for IMG. When I left IMG, I then went to a friend's office, a law office, and Jonathan had an office right by me at this other guy's law office. That's how we met. So he's, yeah, he was a hockey fan. So we would tell old stories about stuff. And he brings up old stories that I told him that I'd forgotten all about. Oh, wow. Well, I have to get him on, but he wants to know about yeah. Sportorama, as do I, since it's my home rink. Uh, well, let's, let's hear that story. You know, we'll just, we'll just ask Dave Silks for out. It's a friendly rink. It's a friendly place. Okay. Family friendly. It is. It yes. Is. It, you know, it's amazing if you don't know Sportorama, that area, it's in Muncie, New York. It's right in the middle of a Hasidic community. Yeah. So it's such a weird confluence where you have like all these hockey families going and then you have Hasidic people going to the market right next door. It's just such a yeah. weird dynamic, you know, but it's cool. It's a, you know, it's great rate. We, 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 we did a charity event at the Levity Lab. No, it wasn't, it was, yeah, it was to raise money for the North Rockland uh, youth hockey and uh, did a Levity Live. Our buddy owns a Steve Mazzilli and his family. Yeah. The Palisades Mall. Well. Yeah. And uh, so it's a large, excuse me, mainly Hasidic Jewish families were at this event. And this one comedian that got up, well, maybe they weren't Hasidic Jewish, they're just regular. Orthodox. Yeah. Orthodox. Orthodox. Yep. So this one comedian got up and he was Jewish himself. So he said, hey, let's get this straight. We're doing a fundraiser for all these rich Jewish kids. <laughs> he was like, well, yeah. right. He's basically cutting himself up and the people that. Right, it was, right. It was funny, yeah. Yeah, well, listen, the Hasidic, um, Hasidic and Orthodox Jewish folks are great hockey fans in, in Rockland yeah. County. The, the only problem is they don't play on the travel teams because it's very difficult because the games are on the weekends and they don't, oh, they, yeah, they're yeah. not allowed out on, on the Sabbath. So they, they lose out on, on playing on the travel teams. But, uh, I, again, I love coaching. It's a lot of fun. Hopefully are I won't. You, are you allowed out? Oh, let's go back to there. Are you allowed out certain times your wife lets you out or you have to stay home and take care of the cat? Pretty much. <laughs> now I do. The cat was painfully sick and, that, and all of a sudden just made this miraculous recovery. And now it's back to being an asshole. So <laughs> I, she, she was just kind of mellow. Now it's like, oh, I'm just, you're like, you just lay this, just knock something off the table. Like, see, it's like, why would you do that, cat? I know, it's cats like that too. That's what, like cats jumping up on the counter and licking the butter and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. And you have to, yeah. And that's why I don't understand why they call hockey players rats, like Ken Lindsman and Brad Marshall. They should, they're more like cats because cats are just, they're just yeah, assholes. They're you know, they, yeah, they're, they want to start trouble. So, I never called. I never called a cat an asshole before, but I guess they're. Yeah. No, they kind of are. I mean, it's in there, yes. you know. And they're also kind of cool, so it's it's a, like a toss up, you know. They're it's almost so like. Do the kid? the kids love the cat? Like, yeah. Oh, okay. You know, so yeah. it's more your wife. Your wife wanted to get the cat. Yeah, and the kids were like, "Yeah, I want the cat." And Christine's the only one who's ever cleaned the litter box, so it's like okay. it's like the dog. We got the dog twelve years ago, and I'm the only one who ever walks the dog. Like, no, ever, yeah, we're gonna help. We're gonna help. But nobody walks. It just so so. Is that pretty emblematic? I like that word, emblematic. Does that mean like? Yeah. Is that really what happens in your relationship that you don't want something with your wife? Just... Yeah, I don't uh, know. I, I've been I know where going with that. Uh, yes. Um, happy wife, happy life. So, yeah. So, if, if, if you know, I didn't, I, I wasn't sold on the dog either, who I love, we had for 12 years, but she's like, yeah, I'm going to look at this dog. And I said, that's great. Uh, let me know how it goes. She went and looked. And then she's like, okay, I'm going again to look. And then she, the second look, because we adopted the dog. She is like, okay, bring the dog home with us. I'm like, oh, to try out. She's like, no, we we adopt the dog. I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm gonna eat this one. So yeah, so yeah. Is that? I mean, listen, I'm really asking for like to know how how to properly stay married. So you just just get to the point and just say, okay, she wants to make a decision. I guess as long as she doesn't abuse that right, right? Like, you yeah, always doing that. There's, no, not at all. There's definitely talks, but like, so like for instance, Christine just redid the um, decor in our bedroom. And she's like, what do you think? I'm like, this is all you. Whatever you want to do, just just you do. I don't want to even have any. Yeah. Whatever you want to yeah. do. Just... I, yeah. Guys should never get involved in decorating. No. 
Yeah. Not at not at all. Like just just whatever you want to do. Just yeah. You, well, you've seen my place. I, there's no woman here, and then shows right. There's, there's no decorating either. Well, there, there is. No, you say that. That you say that there is pictures a lot. I, I take. I, I, I don't. No, I take it back. There's a couple pictures of you, and then there's dust and cobwebs. So you do have a like a theme. No, right. There's yeah. there's no there's there's a lot of pictures. There's a picture of the log cabin up on the hill. There's a picture <laughs> of the the mountain man holding on to the horse, and there's pictures of my kids. Yes, my there parents. are. Parents. There are. There's a sad. You're just not paying attention. I think you're no, I, I think, get going. I'm, that's true. I'm like, right to business. No, there's a saddle. There's a horse saddle, an actual saddle, and a, and your dad's helmet, which is cool. Yeah. And then there's, and there's lots of lots of pictures. My old jerseys are up on the wall. You have your Kings and Rangers. You know, and I don't have a Tom Laidlaw jersey. I have a lot. So let's get on that. Um, yeah. Let's get a signed one here. But you do have your jerseys up, and you have a picture of yourself. I think we're in the sea, right? Blocking a yep. shot from yep. Beezer. That's right. Yeah. And But that's it. So that's uh, well, that's home. that's up here. That's up here in the office. But I mean, uh, downstairs, it's lovely. Yeah, there's some like southwestern fair. John Wayne, John Wayne, right? Marion Morrison stuff sprinkled throughout. <laughs> there, with his lips and his wig and his fake teeth. Oh, did he? Roll he didn't that. have a wig, did he? He absolutely had a wig. Oh, that's not Him and Billy Smith. I told you, yes, and Chico Resh. Chico Mesh. As a as a balding man, I was trained by a bald man, my father, from the, a young age to spot wigs because he was very bitter. I guess about being bald, like so we'd be at a Ranger game or wherever, a baseball game, working. He's like, "Tommy, look at that guy's freaking rug. Look at that. Why would a guy put a Why would a guy put a wig on? I don't get that. I don't. That's what I said. Christine tells me to. I'm like, I want to just buzz my head, and she's like, No, but get a wig. I'm like, I'm not getting a wig. So yeah, I, I just want to buzz it. No, no. You just, I just, even, and they're much better now. Some of the worst, and yeah. everybody. I mean, she. Chico Mesh probably had the worst wig I've ever seen, right? Okay, so once again, you're chirping Chico Mesh from afar, calling him Mesh because the puck was always in the back of the mesh, but Chico Resh. Well, because, because I scored on him one time, and he goes to the reporters after. I know the, I know the quote. I know the quote. Go ahead. I said it. Well, that guy scored on me. Yeah. Okay. Condescending. So, no, he, well, I, don't, I, I don't forget. You're like, Chico, I scored on 24 other goalies in my NHL career, okay? You should be honored. I scored more than one goal on any goalie. Okay, we can look that up. We can definitely look that up, and I'm sure somebody will on your Thursday show. They'll tell you, no, you scored two goals on, uh, you know, right. Richard Brodeur in Vancouver or someone. Who? That's my who? first goal. My first goal was Richard. Did you know that? I didn't. I just threw that out there. Was it really? Yeah. Come on. You I, didn't honestly, I honestly just threw that out there. That's so bizarre. That it may, And maybe we'd said it in the past, but it went, I know it went in off your ass. Oh, no. I was in front I was in front of the net in the power play. Freddie Shiro put me there. Barry Beck, or Phyllis Mazzito passed Barry Beck, and Barry shot, rebound, I scored. I thought it hit you in the ass. No. No, 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 no. Okay. That was. No. Look at that. Who got you the belly? Barry back at Philadelphia. What's that, sorry? Who got you the puck? You know what? I don't know. I can't remember that part. It's, it's just another goal to me. It's just another goal. Right. And then you got to the Kings for four years, and you scored one goal with the Kings in four years. What was it? Was it one? I went for I went for 120 games one time without scoring a goal. That's a season and a half. Full. Yeah, almost. That is exactly a season and a half. Wow. And you played with Gretzky, and, and yeah. no goal in two years. Yeah. You know, one of the highlights, I, I was watching an old game, uh, Philly, we were playing Philly in the playoffs, and I scored a goal, and Phyllis was in the color commentating. He goes, that's unbelievable. He played all 80 games, didn't score a goal, and they voted him as player's player. Like, he was very complimentary. Wow. He was recognizing that he didn't even score a goal, and he got a player's player award. For people who don't know, that's voted by the team, your teammates. It's a real honor to get that, because they're saying you're not necessarily the best player in the You're the best teammate. Right? You're the best yeah. teammate. Yeah, and you were breaking balls, cutting Mike Rogers' sticks, you know, doing baby powder, and you still got that. It's, it is amazing, right? That some of the stuff I did, and they, they named me the player's player twice. They got that. 
but obviously that's one that's one that really hits you because your teammates pick it and they say this is yeah. the guy who, who who's our guy, which is pretty. It's one year I won it by myself, the next year I won it with Mark Pat, which your guy. There you go. I would have voted for Pat if I was in that locker room. Not you. No offense. So and <laughs> speaking, go ahead. Go. Come on. No, speaking of Phil Esposito, he we're working, we're negotiating getting him on the show. An absolute legend in hockey. But the negotiation so far, he wants three bottles of vodka from Tom. So we, we have to make that happen, Tom. So if I win three bottles of vodka, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking it myself. I'm not giving it by, by four. Well, Costco's got a good deal on vodka, I'm sure. They don't, they don't, uh, they don't sell uh, liquor in uh, Australia. They sell beer, but not uh, vodka. Oh, I didn't know that. I, I looked up. There's only one per state uh, that's allowed to um, uh, have uh, vodka. Wow. So we have to get on it. We have to. We need Phil on the show. So let's. Uh, we'll have to get some vodka and get it sent out of Tampa. So Phil can come on. He curses Marines that. But he's said, like, what is he? Ninety years old? Is he going to pass out? Like he, he's eighty years old. And he's 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 still on the radio for the Lightning, and he's great. You're, you got to give vodka to people that are going to enjoy it. You can't. Let's let's send it down. We'll make that happen. So today we have someone who's not a vodka drinker, but is definitely into um, some plant based medicine and has an incredible story. I think people are going to love this one. Whoa. I can't wait to hear his story. Uh, we'll talk about it on the show, but we had a good mutual friend that just wanted to see him. That's how this all came about. Yeah. And it was life-changing for this guy. Uh, so I, I'd never met Riley before. Picked up the phone, called him, and asked him to come on the show with us, and he's more than happy to do it. So yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. I'm very excited to hear Riley Cote tell his story. This is going to be awesome. He's a tough dude, too, man. I remember watching him fight. He wasn't the biggest guy out there, but he would take on anybody. And now he's ch- completely changed. Yeah. And this will be great. So psilocybin, where are you at in the whole psilocybin thing, cannabis, all that kind of stuff? Are you accepting it, that, center? How are you? That's a great question. I, I don't know. I've never tried psilocybin, which is for mushrooms. I, I, I did, I, I don't drink. I haven't drank in many years, but I do. Recently, I started trying THC gummies, um, oh. usually at night to help sleep. And I like, and, and the reason I try them is because I was, when my mom passed away, I, we had the services and my dad, my father was 75 years old. It's like I'm taking gummies and going to bed. And I was like, if oh. he's, taking these yeah. plant-based medicine for, for anxiety. What am I w- afraid of? So I, yeah, so I'll, occasionally I'll use them and I, I like, I like how I feel. It doesn't, there's no side effects. I go to sleep and it's cool. Yeah. There's such a stigma about the cannabis, cannabis in general, right? Like THC, marijuana, all that kind of stuff. But Intention. years ago, it was, uh, years ago it was used as a medicine to tell sure. illnesses. Yeah. Yeah. But the whole reefer madness thing, there was a, there was intentionally done to kind of put this stigma on it that you mentioned and, you know, pump up alcohol as this family fun, you know, thing. Well, hold on. Re- reefer, Rich Reefer Madness. What's that? There, was a, there was a movie called Reefer Madness and it was about oh. how you would lose your mind if you smoked the, the devil's oh. lettuce or the marijuana, then how evil it was. And then that, they got this stigma that it was just like for stoners and losers and, 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 uh-huh. and junkies. But meanwhile, alcohol, which is so destructive, I just know. DUIs alone is pumped up and is, you know, sponsoring the Super Bowl. So it's like, it's amazing how that 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 narrative is crafted, you know, and and this is what that's true, right? Yeah. So at yeah. some point, then we're going to have commercials on uh, for marijuana products too, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Like, no one, no one gets high and you know goes and beats their wife. You know, no one goes high and like, gets into fights. They just chill, you know. Yeah, I know. Because there's also that stigma the the gateway to other drugs, right? That was the term they used all the time. That's BS. That's not true. That's BS. My oldest son, Shane, actually works for a cannabis company out of uh, Toronto, uh, Kronos, very uh, like the second largest in the world. I think he. He's their uh, big into their finance department. So. Oh wow, yeah, cool. Yeah, listen, it's 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 not. It's I think that the attitudes are changing on that as they should. And yeah. we'll, we you know, we'll hear from someone who's in it and who's you know living that life with Riley Cote on this next episode. Excellent. Looking forward to it, Mister Smith. There we go. So 
Tom, we have a great show today. Our show is called Full Change, and we have the epitome of someone changing their lives up. We have a guy who was a Philly Flyer tough guy who was a brawler and is now a yogi and a mental health advocate and just doing some really cool things. Today we have Riley Cote on the show. I never looked at that way. You're right. Riley, thanks for coming on. You're right. Big change in your life, right? Yeah. Or, yeah, thanks for having me. So this all happened. Uh, I won't. I probably should mention his name or not. Then a fellow friend of ours. I uh, went to Riley uh, past weekend and got a lot of help uh, with the psilocybin's and everything too. So really interesting stuff. Uh, where are you from, Riley? You're from Winnipeg. I am. Yeah, born and raised. Moved away from home when I was 16 in the Western Hockey League. Yeah. Where'd you play in Western? Uh, Prince Albert. Oh, okay. Yeah, Prince Albert. Three years, four years. No, you a fighter there too? You know what? I wasn't. Uh, four years. I think I maybe had 20 fights in four years. So I was an established. I mean, I, I was a competitive guy, but I didn't. I was still thinking I was better than I was, and. I hadn't accepted the role yet. <laughs> See, I was the other way around. I thought I was the toughest guy on the planet when I was in college, and then I realized I got to the NHL, and now it's just not the case there. Yeah. No, not the case at all. And then, so you were drafted by the Flyers? No, I was never drafted. No, it was the, just a walk-on. Yeah, I spent some time in the Central Hockey League, Coast, American League, and then eventually uh, signed a deal with, uh, with the Flyers. And did you know that you would have to be a fighter to play in the NHL? I think I just accepted it. Uh, my my uh, 20-year-old year, I went to Toronto Maple Leafs training camp. Wasn't drafted. That was after four years of junior. And I just I went into training camp accepting that this is what I need to do. So I went out there, guns a-blazing. And, yeah. uh, you know, kind of kind of started creating my identity in training camp. I, well, I landed up fighting Darcy Tucker first shift in training camp. And oh, did you? Oh, nice. Knocked the pants off him. But, I mean, he was obviously not a heavyweight by any means. And and really, neither was I. Like, I. I didn't even know what the hell I was. I was just trying to figure this thing out. So, right. uh, but but nonetheless, the mentality I was, you know, hard like I hardwired myself to f- fight, right? And, and that was kind of how I how I did it. So, now, did somebody tell you that you had to do that? You just figured that out on your own. You know what? I I think I figured it out on my own with probably reflecting on some of the coaches that I had, uh, you know, beforehand. So I had Kevin McClelland as a as a coach for his, my sixteen and seventeen year old year, and then I look back and. You know, he was kind of without telling me to fight, fight, you know, and right. I realized like kind of like looking back at my, my junior career that I probably should have listened to him a little more, you know, had maybe done that, maybe getting him on the map a little bit more with some NHL teams. But nonetheless, I think I kind of all, it all made sense to me when I, when I decided to turn pro to say like, listen, like this is your only standing chance is if you take on this role and you, and, and you become fearless and and take on any and all customers. So, uh, but yeah, so it was kind of figured out on my own, but with had, it had some seeds planted early on in my junior career. So when you fought Tucker at, at training camp, did anybody say anything to you? Yeah. Well, interesting enough, it turned out to be a little bit of a dramatic scenario. So uh, the story goes, literally first shift, first day of training camp, hop over the boards and I just, I got Travis Green lined up, like, and just blow him up. And then sure enough, Tucker comes over to defend him. Um, and it was, it was literally two punches, just like, just, just flattened them. And, uh, so I'm feeling all good and proud and, you know, so lads up showing all over sports, sports net and everything like that. But, uh, but after this, this scrimmage, it was like one of those, you know, blue and white games. So I was in the shower and Domi was on my team. Uh, Shane Corson was on my team. So I'm in the shower. I'm hearing a bunch of ruckus outside the shower. And I'm like, what the fuck's going on? This doesn't sound like something's happening in, in the locker room. I come out, and sure enough, t- Tucker could come into the locker room looking for me. He wanted to fight. He wanted to fight again. I was like, dude, I'm like, so I guess uh, Domi and Corson and I think Belak was in there. They just kind of like 
settling things down, getting them out of the way. And it turned out to be this dramatic thing in camp. Right. Like, I'm like, man, I'm just, I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. I'm just here to try and get noticed, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's a great way to get attention, right? The coach is looking at it like, yes. Yeah. 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 So, but you should have went to camp there. Didn't make the team, no one Charles? I didn't make the team. So I, I ended up signing uh, an American League deal with St. John's Maple Leafs and then ended up spending most of my time in the Central Hockey League. It was funny. I actually had an agent at the time that I couldn't track down. Who what? Who was it? Who was it? A Tom Laidlaw agent? My own. I couldn't find the guy, so I obviously fired him and landed up finding another guy. But I was like in this jam. They wanted to sign me to an American League deal, and right. well, at the time I didn't even know what the hell they wanted to sign me to. But I know I didn't want to go back to juniors, so I needed to figure something out. And I'm on, you know, this is the kind of like starting starting point of cell phones and like you know, like right. I'm I'm trying to get a hold of this guy. I'm like I, I I don't know what to tell you. I got nobody to to come to the table with so i figured out on my own and yeah so my, most of that year in the central hockey league doug shedden was my coach one of the actually won a championship down there turned out to be a pretty good year i gotta ask i was an agent for over 20 years so i gotta ask you who was the agent uh he was like you know you wouldn't even know him it was uh he only represented three guys in the west oh. league i was a small guy i went with them because the guy on my team had him that like seemed to do well and i, I had i had one before um that uh Craig Oster and, and oh. company there. Um, and then again, that was like a small fish in a big pond for them. Yeah. So I wanted to go with the smaller guy. You know, sure enough, you go with the smaller guy and, and the guy is just like non-existent. What do you need? <laughs> well, Riley, what happened? What happened when you said, hey, guys, I have a contract here. What, what are we doing? What did he say? Oh, sorry. I was well, hey, where do you find him? Yeah, I was like after the fact because I had already had to make a decision. And I'm like, dude, I'm like, I'm in training camp. Like, aren't you supposed to be by your phone? Like, this is like the time. Yeah. I, I could use your services. Um so yeah, it was an easy dismissal, but I was like scratching my head. I'm like, am I that shitty? Like, am I that? <laughs> yeah. Can I pick up the phone and answer my call? You only got three clients, dude. Like, are you that busy? Like, um, but That's yeah, it's a lot of turning out all, all good, right? Just life lessons. And so, so you go to St. John's for that whole year then, or you go down to the Central League? Yeah. So I went, uh, went down to St. John's for a bit and then, uh, and then sent down to the Central Hockey League for most of the year. I think I only played like nine games with St. John's at a, a month stint there, you know, in and out of the lineup. Um, but it really got my roots in, in, in Memphis to the Central Hockey League. Really kind of got an opportunity to, to play and establish that role that I was trying to create. So fighting everyone and their brother, you know, just going after the biggest guy, the guy with the most penalty minutes, you know, doing it, <laughs> doing it the old fashioned way. And yeah, it was like, this is the jungle, dude. I'm like, I want to get out of here, like yeah. quickly, you know, because these guys, like, really, a lot of them just didn't give a shit. But juice monkeys, like, just guys, just like out of a movie, right? I'm like, right. I, I still actually had a, a dream to play in the NHL at this point, so I was like, man, how, what's the quickest way out of here? It's just like work my ass off and fight and get noticed. Hopefully, someone signs me and, and gets right. me the hell out of it. Well, I don't think people realize what a nasty job that is, too, right? Like, you're trying to establish yourself, and you can't back away from anybody. I had uh, Warren Reichel as a client, one of my first clients in the agent business, and he kind of fumbled around the minors, and I got him as a client, and I just I'd left, just retired, retired in L.A., so I knew that they needed a tough guy. I think Gene Miller was moving on, and I told him, I said, listen, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to have to fight everybody that moves, and uh, just like you, he did that and stayed in the NHL. So. so how did you get to Philadelphia then? So after that first year, I went to Syracuse, or I went to uh, Columbus Blue Jackets training camp, and um, signed with, uh, with Syracuse, American League, spent most of the year in the coast. Actually, a pretty bad eye injury in training camp. Um, my eye, you know, I, I had two surgeries, I had a, a uh, detached retina, had a laser surgery, and then a manual surgery on that. 
And I, and I, I honestly thought I was blind. I thought it was all over there, but I landed up bypassing Syracuse and just went right to the coast because just my injury and, you know, I had to throw. That was the first year they, I think they, uh, they had mandatory visors. So, I mean, it worked out well since that eye injury. Did the same thing, fought my way, tried to fight my way out of that league. I think I only played a handful of games with Syracuse that year. And then the, the next year was the 04 05 lockout. Uh-huh. And, you know, jobs were limited. And I'm like, like I spent another year in this in the coast here. And where am I going to go? So, sure enough, um, the general manager of the, of the Central Hockey League team that I'd played with the year before called me up and was like, listen, he's like, you, you, want, you, you want a job? You can come here. I'm like, fuck. I'm like, oh, I don't. I was hoping that I was going to move up and not move, you know, right, kind of right. track here, but also understanding the lockout. So I go down there, report, I'm there three days. And then Hexy, Ron Hexel calls me up. He's with, he's a general manager of the Phantoms, assistant drum manager of the Flyers. And he says, listen, he's like, uh, we want to sign a 25 game trial. Meet us in Hartford. we got a couple of banged up bodies and we'll see how the weekend goes and, and go from there. So pack my shit up, meet the team in Hartford. And the long and short of it is, I uh, I didn't play that weekend. Um, did a couple more injuries, and I lined up signing four 25-game tryout agreements throughout the whole year. Led the team in penalty minutes and fights, and we won the Calder Cup. And uh, I just whatever. I just individually had a great year. Just got confidence, you know. Just felt like I belonged. Uh, John Stevens was my biggest fans, and Paul Homer as well. But yeah. uh, you know, we, we won. You know, obviously, when the team wins, everyone does what better. Yeah, I landed up signing a. A, a contract on my own with Bobby Clark. You know, had, oh, you did? Now, now on my own again. You know, I was like, so this is like, seems to be the, the way of the world here. But, uh, oh, hold on. Ask, I got to ask you, what was that like negotiating with him? There wasn't much negotiation. I was just so excited to sign an NHL deal. I mean, I, I asked for a couple little things, but, you know, I think he he saw my value. I was also a guy that was, uh, you know, some bit understanding of, you know, where I was and, and who I was. So I wasn't going in there like thinking I wasn't something I wasn't. So, it was just an honor to be face to face with them, and and you know, honestly, negotiating. You say negotiate. It was just really kind of like, yes, yes. You know, I'm very good, and I want to be here, and I'm I'm proud to be a flyer. So, yeah, it was it was a dream come true for sure. The reason I ask is when I was the agent, uh, represented Brian Boucher, and he had oh, a good okay. run. Yeah, he had a good run uh, at the playoffs one year, and then his contract just started so we negotiating the contract, and he was you know, poor player to the team. So Mr. Snyder at the time. Uh, called me up to his office down in Philadelphia. So it's my Mr. Snyder, uh, Bobby Clark, and myself. And I played against Bobby. Um, never really had problems with the, you know, we didn't have much problems at all. But I really felt that Boucher was worth a lot of money and I, was, I wasn't giving in. And Mr. Snyder was great. I think he actually kind of respected it. Bobby Clark lost his mind. He just starts screaming and you're just being stuck. Like he's red faced a whole bit. And both Mr. Snyder, too, I looked over at him and he's looking at Bobby like, what are you doing? So that always had that memory. He, he never acted like that before, but it's just interesting how he acted. But he probably had more respect than you were a player too. Yeah, and I think the negotiations is probably a little tougher when you know you talk about a guy like Bush or a goaltender. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you're, you're you're trying to sell the value. You know, he knows what he sees as value. But like I was kind of like I am what I am. Like you know, there's not really a much much movement here. You know, <laughs> like right. like uh, I'm a fringe guy. So. Um, but you're a perfect fit for Philly, though. You're a, you're definitely a flyer guy, you know, in your career. It just works, you know. I, and I guess he recognized that too. It was very easy to get you signed. Yeah, exactly. And he 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 attended a lot of the games because you know the o four o five lockout, the NHL wasn't going on, so he saw a lot of games. And yeah, I mean, I wear my heart on my sleeve, and went out there and try to recreate 
our version of what the Broad Street Bullies might have been, you know, in the American League. We had a pretty tough team that year with Todd Fedorik, Lineup coming down. We had Josh Stratton, Ben Eager, a few other kind of middleweight guys. So, like, we were a tough team and, and a good team. But, um, but yeah, I definitely fit the, the Flyers' MO. I mean, I, the two things I hung my hat on were hard work and good attitude. And, you know, then I took on the role of good fighter. So, it was just like, a, you know, a perfect fit for me. What, what were you weighing all this time? So the heaviest I was is 220, which is way too heavy. Uh, I, I think the best playing weight was maybe around 212, and, and I'm a buck 85 right now. So I was packing on the weight and thinking that the weight was going to serve me well as a fighter and, you know, I was going to be tougher or stronger with it. And th- that would be one thing if I go back and change it, I would have been a little more mindful around uh, being more, you know, approaching this more like a martial artist than a UFC fighter where you're right. kind of, yeah, not that I could like necessarily go down a weight class because I didn't really, wasn't really in that position, but I I would have I would have been a more functional fighter. I would have definitely done things a little differently. Yeah, because again, I lined up working against me. It was more like thicking up the face so I could take bombs from Brashear and and Larock, you know, more than being a functional fighter. You know, <laughs> so you fought those guys. That's right, too, Epo. Oh yeah, like five five times Brash, four times wow. Larock. So what's it like then? I mean, you're obviously established yourself. You knew how to fight and all that, but you still got to be saying like LaRock, those two guys are big too. Like they hit you. You're in trouble, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had no business fighting them. I had no, no real choice either. You know, right. like, you know, it's like uh, in my, in, in, in my situation, I'm like, I can't turn down a fight, right? I right. can't show any sort of sign of weakness and show the boys that I, you know, I'm going to dodge brash and, you know, go for like the second or third toughest guy. So like, in my mind, I'm just like a hundred percent when I'm playing these guys, like I can't show any any right. signs of fear. So I'm going I'm like literally going after them, not even letting them come after me. So um I actually did pretty well um against both of them. Brash kicked my ass two times, one pretty bad actually. But the first time I fought it was in training camp, uh, in a preseason game when he's in a wash and I and I, I say I probably earned the, the position on the team by fighting him and, and not just fighting, but doing well. I cut him open and, and I hung in there and, and weathered the storm. Um, but then he, you know, later kicked my ass pretty good. Uh, George, actually, surprisingly, I did add out of the four fights, like three of them were like pretty legitimate. Um, you know, he's a, but they're both lefties and I'm a lefty. So I didn't fight many lefties. And this, obviously the super heavyweights have to be lefties. So the strategy was was a little bit different than I was used to and just the strengths, right? I mean, I was just yeah. like, just, just worrying to not get my head knocked off, which Laroque almost did one time. My helmet, my helmet flew off, like sticking <laughs> feet there, surprised my head didn't, you know, it didn't uh, detach, but, um, but yeah, so, you know, it was one of those things I had to, you know, and um, I had no, I said I had no choice. Yeah, I did have a choice, but I felt like I would be letting myself down, letting my team down. And, right. and really I was trying to create this fearless character, right? That was like, that was going to show up every single night, no matter how banged up I was and no matter who the opponent was. So probably to a detriment. But that, and that's, a, that's a great point you made though, because we've had a lot of fighters on the show and they all, many of them said they were sick to their stomachs the night before they saw the game sheet. They knew who they were going to go with. And they said they just couldn't sleep. They couldn't, they couldn't get their head right. Did you have any of that going on? Yeah. I had my version of that for sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to really ex- explain the the, 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 the mental state that you're in, but you're kind of squeezed in the middle of, fight or flight right there's this chronic state of anxiety because you know you're gonna fight probably or you're preparing to fight you're just not sure when it's gonna happen and then when one fight's over you're worrying about the next one it could happen in that game that period and then oh and or you're worrying about you know tomorrow and who you're playing (laughs) tomorrow so it's just like constantly on your mind it just wears down your nervous system so 
you know, thank God, like I, 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 you know, I did have a relationship with cannabis and it did help me sleep the night before. Did, did I really even understand the, the true therapeutics of it? No, but I knew that it helped me put me to sleep sure. a little bit. Um, during the day, it was just like, you just got to keep your mind, you, you just got to stay loose. Like I played a lot of kickball. I got to the rink early and probably drank way too much coffee, but nonetheless, I was just trying to keep my mind off the fight and just my, my mind just like on engaging with players and teammates and, and having some fun. I was trying to keep it loose around there. So. Don't think people understand how that is mentally too, right? Like you can say you try to block it out of your mind, but can't it, it's not a i don't think it's a physical fear thing it's like it's man on man you're in front of eighteen thousand people both teams are watching this whole thing and, and like you said your your teammates are looking at you they they want you to win because now that's kind of set the precedent so i don't think people realize how tough that is i i early in my career i fought more but i got to a point where yeah, i just i was that defensive defenseman i had to really slow my mind down and think the game and everything i was just getting so wound up that i just yeah, luckily, her Brooks came along and coached me. Said, "Tom, I don't watch you fight anymore." I said, oh, "Okay, that's fine." Yeah, right. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, we're yeah. To have that conversation. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. Yeah, I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate, how a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com match. Just go to Indeed.com match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah. So, so Riley, with an overactive amygdala like you just described, how was it, uh, how could you stay on dry island? I guess you couldn't, right? Yeah, I definitely wasn't. I never signed up for dry island. <laughs> um, I, I didn't think that, you I mean, I, looking back now, for sure, I, I should have signed up for Dry Island, but you know, I just didn't have the coping mechanisms. My my nervous system was fried, and I needed. I say I needed. I just uh, felt the the need to self medicate to again bury my head into the sand and and then hope that I wake up and my nervous system was a little bit calmer. But that wasn't the case, so it just kept you know it just kept being part of the cycle of you know jacking yourself up and unwinding the machine and doing it all over again. And Tom, you know, I don't think you know what Dry Island is, but it, the Laviolette instituted this dry island policy where the, the young flyer guys wouldn't drink. It wouldn't, I guess, wouldn't party, right? They had to sign up for it. Oh, sorry, right. right. I didn't know that. Wow. So yeah. that, was everybody required, everybody was required to sign up for it? 
No, it wasn't a requirement, but it was an ownership thing, right? So he puts the list up on the board. You race basically race Dry Island, and you walk up to the board and put your name up there if you're gonna if you're gonna sign up for Dry Island. And I never did because I was just being honest. Like I'm not gonna put my name up there and and then not subscribe to it. And there was, I would say, like three quarters of the guys you know, subscribed to it, and the rest didn't. And they're just being honest with it. And you know, it's a, it's a, it's a serious commitment. This is like right after Christmas, like the rest of the way, right? I mean, to not to not have any beverages at all, and I, you know, I don't drink anymore. But like, you know, at the time, I'd be like, well, how can I ha- not have like a glass of wine at dinner? You know, and be honest, uh, you know, but. Maybe I was justifying my own party habits too in there, but well, again, the culture of the game was still there's a beer drinking league still, right? Oh yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I think it was. You know, not that guys are, are not drinking anymore, but it was. I was. I would say it's fading out. There was more coping mechanisms. I think cannabis, the the increase of cannabis based products was increasing, so guys were a little more mindful and guys were using. Uh, other ways to manage the grind but um but at that time yeah definitely guys are still partying pretty good so uh, so the guys that signed up for dry island do you think they what half of them really didn't stick out say on dry island i mean it's it, it's hard to say i i i know for sure a couple of those guys but the guys that put their name up violated it you know again if, yeah. i guess technically if you had one beverage you violated right, it right. um i think it was more just to slow guys down and have some ownership in it and um, yeah, I, I thought the concept was, was good because it keeps people accountable, but you know, and, and there was no pressure if he didn't, but you know, it, it, I think it, it kind of made feel guys feel a little weird. Like you're, you're you know, like, yeah, see, we would, when we played, we would have been outraged. We would have been like, you don't have to tell Ryan what to do. I'm drinking, I'm drinking beer. That's it. Yeah. It was like mandatory for you guys yeah. to yeah. drink beer. The totally. But, and Tom, you dabbled, I know it wasn't as big, but you dabbled in cannabis too, a little bit in the beginning of your career, right? Well, when I first went to college, yeah, I, I knew nothing about uh, marijuana at all. Uh, got there, and it was my first year there was the first year we had a first year we had a hockey team. We're in the dorms, and they made an announcement that the two guys in the team had get caught smoking pot. And I was outraged. I thought this, I thought it was like cocaine or heroin or something. I knew nothing about it, little farm boy. And then so they educated me uh, about what it was. So two weeks later, I decided I was going to buy a pallet of pot. I was going to sell it. Going to be a dealer. Didn't didn't sell a drop of it. Turned into a total pothead my first semester. But I, you know, I never, I, I was, I was, I was too, too extreme. You know, I was just, I would smoke pot until I just passed out. Like I really didn't have like fun with it. I didn't control it. Um, it was actually probably one of the best things that ever happened to me. I went through that period and it scared myself to death because I want to play in the NHL. I thought I was, I was screwing up my opportunity. So I, you know, I dabbled in it after that. It's interesting now because it re- really had that stigma that it was this terrible thing, right? It's awful, which has obviously changed now. So, so the whole time, so you were drinking, uh, and, and doing pot the whole time you were a pro. Oh yeah. I mean, it's junior too, going back to junior. I mean, I grew up growing up in what, you know, say Western Canada, cannabis was, your cannabis was everywhere. Right. I mean, and I, I didn't have a manual like nobody else. Right. It was just kind of like figure this thing out on your own. But I always, I say, I always felt like there was something, um, there with cannabis that 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 didn't align with the messaging that i got from you know the, the state the church you know my parents right the devil's lettuce and i just like i'm like i don't i don't feel that you know so there so i guess there's a little bit of uh you know the outlaw in me and i guess you could say some bit of rebellion but i you know i went up against the traditional belief systems and you know i follow i say follow my heart to some degree because at that time i was just going off a of feeling i had no understanding of the science to support it and um it, i i noticed that I, I slept better 
Um, you know, I didn't really understand anxiety at the time until I turned pro, right? Juniors, I was like, oh, well, you, you, you're young and you're, you're playing junior hockey. There's no, there's no anxiety, right? Uh, um, so I didn't really understand like the, the, the true psychology, but I knew that it was helping me. And then booze, like, you know, like it's just ingrained in the culture. It's ingrained in hockey culture. And I moved away from home when I was 60 years old and I'm belly up at my first part. You know what I mean? Feel like a bag of shit, but it was just like, it was just what you did. Like, you don't even question it. It was just like, it's part of, it's part of the culture. It's just part of being on the team. Um, and, and how highly destructive booze is, but I didn't really make sense of how destructive that is on the body and the emotions and the spiritual, the spiritual body until later in my life when I was basically realizing I was self-destructing. Cause it's like, you're kind of on your way up, even if you're poisoning yourself and you're using these unsustainable uh, tools, you can still kind of outwork them. You can kind of like, you think you think you can outwit them, um, and, until they, until they grab a hold of your spirit fully and then just essentially strangle you. Right. Um, and you have to, you're forced to make a decision on how you're going to proceed. So, um, but yeah, it was, again, there, there was no one, it was, and no one in any of these organizations or the league or anyone around teaching yeah. and educating on the destructive nature of these substances and, or how to mindfully use some of these others, because it was at that time, highly illegal. Right. I mean, there was no me medical programs state by state. It was still, you know, federally and state illegal illegal and um it was just it was just it was just taboo it was just we were you hiding we you hiding the marijuana use oh yeah when i played yeah for sure for sure yeah i wasn't public about it there's always yeah, a handful of guys uh, on the team on each team that i played no matter what league that i say were quietly but openly you know using cannabis but it was very misunderstood still right i mean it was it was just like a drug it was just like an, it was kind of like another version of alcohol was just to get stoned and, you know, but take your mind off of it. You know, now I have a completely different relationship with it and I look at it completely different than I did at the time. But, uh, yeah, you just kind of, you, you know, you're kind of left out there figuring this thing out on your own. And unfortunately it's dragged a lot of people down into darkness un unnecessarily. And, you know, unfortunately a lot of people have, have moved on, um, because the misunderstanding and thinking all drugs are the same and, you know, the rabbit hole of booze being a gateway to the rest of the party drugs and, and how that affects the, the mindset and, and, and the, just the mental status and, and how it, it fuels depression and, you know, just like, just our, our, our purpose, right. It just dims the light. So it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting ride to see how the very same things that I was engaged in, I'm still engaged in some of them in a, just in a different manner. You know, it's all about intention, you know, and what, what is the intention, the why behind why you're reaching for that versus ju it just being a drug and, and something to just numb, numb the pain. Yeah. Did you make a conscious decision to get where you are, are today? Like to understand? Oh yeah, I did. Yeah. I had to really, you know, look inward and own my shit. Right? That was, uh, it was 2010. Um, we, the last year I played we lost the Chicago Blackhawks in the finals that, that last year, you know, Peter Laviolette come in and, you know, again, the dry Island and he, he definitely kept me accountable in some things for sure. But I wasn't playing, I only played 17 games that year, dressed every warm up, you know, as a team guy, but I could see, I could see, um, you know, where, where the role was going, right. There wasn't many tough guys still left. They were kind of phasing them out, but also like, I was like, just, observing my own life and realizing like I, I wasn't 
enjoying the process. I wasn't enjoying the, the ride as much as I, I once was, you know, working your way up and having success and you're trying to live all your childhood dream and eventually finding your way there. And then, you know, you, you, you get there, you stick around for a few years and, and you get some street cred, you're on the map, but then you all of a sudden you're not playing again and you're kind of seeing like, and like, I don't know. There wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't any spiritual alignment anymore. I'm like, what's next? I'm like, I'm living my childhood dream. What's next? And how do I get that feeling back? Um, so I worked, you know, I continued to work my ass off that year. Didn't play much. And then, you know, you kind of like, you say you're praying the universe, you're kind of like asking for some guidance. You're, you're just kind of like desperate and your hands are out. So the, at the end of the year, uh, I had two surgeries and I, I had kind of been reforming my relationship with drugs and alcohol at the time. And I just used cannabis the last two surgeries to prove that I didn't need the pills and I didn't need the booze um, to manage the pain. So I just used cannabis. I was like, oh, well, this is, this is a legitimate pain management tool. And I had been misusing it. And I had this kind of aha moment. And then um, oh, I had a year, a year end meeting with Paul Holmgren, kind of, he knew where my heart was at because I didn't play. And, you know, I was around the rink, you know, kind of carrying this positive stoic attitude. And, uh, but he knew that <clears throat> I wasn't where I wanted to be. He was honest with me. He's like, you're probably going to get sent down to the Myers next year, even though you have one more year on your contract but with the Flyers one way. So you're going to have to come back to camp and earn the spot. So I'm like, holy shit, I'm like, I'm back to where I was at the start. <clears throat> not that, but you know, not that I was ever that settled that I didn't have to worry about my job. But nonetheless, I felt like I was back to, to, to square one. So I, I shelved that conversation, went back home to Winnipeg and, uh, you know, in my, on my, in my mind and all my heart, I was like, fuck, I'm like, like, there's gotta be like an exit here. How do I, you know, maneuver with this situation? And then sure enough, he calls me two weeks after the season and, uh, says, listen, uh, one of the assistant coaches for the Phantoms is Shell Samuelson's house got struck by lightning and burned down. He's not going to be returning as a job opening and, um, do you want it? So, and I was instantly in this, in the moment I was like, yes, but I can't say it. I can't show my hand. You know, I got, I'm like, let me show. Well, I, I've got to, I got to touch on that. Yeah. So, something needs to happen for you, right? Get going in a different direction and Shell's house gets hit by lightning. Like how rare is that? Like were you saying to yourself, was this meant to be or what? Yeah. Thank you. To totally. It's exactly what would come to mind. Right. I'm like, what are the chances of that? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like what are the chances of, you know, that, that happening? And then like a general manager calling up a 28 year old guy with another, you know, with another year on their contract offer him the job. Like the whole thing just like made a, a ton of sense where yeah. I'm on the phone with Paul Homer. I'm in Winnipeg and my, my whole childhood dream, everything I'd worked my ass off for, it was like essentially I'm one yes away from like packing that all in and moving on with my life. Right. So it's like all right there in front of me, but like, this is it. This is, this is, yeah. this is what you've been praying for. This is what you've been asking for. So, so let me sleep on. I called them first thing in the morning and said, Let, let's do it. So I turned that last year of playing into a four-year coaching deal, but it was, it was beyond the coaching deal. It was what would, what happened was it gave me the, the space to, to breathe, right? Or instantly that I feel like this, this, this massive cloud, this dark cloud all over me just dissipate. It was like, because now I'm no longer fighting for a living. I'm on the other side of the fence and I can breathe. I'm still in the hockey game, still in the sport I love. But now I made the commitment to engage in this world of healing. So I had a taste for it with the cannabis. I had a taste for it, um, you know, with, with Lavi coming in and kind of bringing some ownership on me of being a leaner hockey player. Because I talked about beforehand, I was I was a little bit overweight. I was fat. You know, I was fat. I was packing on the weight to fight guys. 
So there were all these things kind of made sense, but I'm like, this makes a shitload of sense. I'm going to exit stage left here. I'm bowing out of the game with honor. The Flyers are loyal to me. I'm loyal to the Flyers. I'm taking my salary off the cap. I'm going to stay in the organization. I'm going to be a mentor to these guys, you know? Um, and, but, uh, but most importantly, I am going to tackle my, my issues head on and, and own them. So I stopped drinking for a year. Uh, the, the revelation I had with cannabis, I, I soon had with uh, psilocybin mushrooms and, and started um, treating some of the brain, say the brain injury stuff, the concussion related issues that I was dealing with, uh, with psilocybin, uh, because a lot of the same properties that the cannabis plant had, so did psilocybin, the neurogenesis, the neuroprotective properties, the anti-inflammatory properties. And then that just like propelled me down this path of mindfulness because it just opens up, it just opens up a, a different perspective. It helps you let go of of your old self, if you will, your old identity or who you think you were, right? Do we have embodied this role of the hockey player, embodied this role of the fighter? And it, and and you and you think you are that, right? You think your actual spiritual identity is that, which is is, is not yeah. the case, obviously. So it helps you shed the skin, helps you kind of recreate a new identity, and, and helps you understand like the importance of being of service and. Uh, in the community and, and abroad. So it's just uh, all, all these things combined just kind of kind of catapulted me into this path, not knowing where it was going really, but just like following my heart. I think the biggest thing that I've learned is like following your heart. Like when you know, when you know that something's not right, it's not in alignment. Like, yes, there's all this other stuff we could chase, the money and the fame and all this stuff and keep hanging on to the dream. Um, but I'll, I will say like the best thing I ever did was follow my heart. And and the other thing I'll say is beyond following the heart is following it in the sense that I followed it enough too to trust in Mother Nature, the cannabis plant, the mushrooms, where I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, where I just had seen so many guys go through traditional substance abuse programs and dragged through the mud, all these different opinions around, you know, their brain injuries or their concussions. I've seen guys, you know, hemmed in darkness and, you know, handed different drugs antidepressants and i said i didn't want to be that guy you know i i felt like i had enough connection to these medicines even though i didn't understand the science at the time to support their therapeutic and medicinal value that i uh i leaned on that relationship as an anchor to help me propel on this path and it's the best thing i ever did i haven't touched a pharmaceutical drug since um right. I, I haven't drank well three and a half years because i slowly reintroduced alcohol after that year of sobriety just to you know I don't know. It was maybe saying that I, I have a different relationship with it. I can respect it a little more now, which I did. But eventually, you know, I, I was just sensing the poison. It was throwing my morning off and mornings off and I just wasn't feeling it. So eventually I cut that out. But um, but yeah, it, it spat me out on the other side um, and, and with a whole different perspective, you know, and uh, and being able to like leverage my career, my story, you know, you know, in the grand scheme of hockey stories, it's like, you know, it, it's like a... a it, it's 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 minuscule but nonetheless in my world the, the power of the story has helped me um being able to have some street credit when i talk about the, the stuff that i'm in, engaged in now the mindfulness and, and you know and, and the meditation and the yoga and just the gentleness um in, in the way i approach the world versus the way i approached it in my in previous life you know so when you get started on the still assignments you were still coaching oh yeah yeah definitely i was i was coaching the cannabis and psilocybin yeah and and I was, I was, I was, I was very vocal around cannabis early, like right, right when I retired, I, you know, I got, you know, cannabis, right. But like the, the, the hemp, the hemp seeds, I got them in the locker room, some hemp protein. I'm from Winnipeg, one of the largest 
hemp food companies on the planet, Manitoba Harvest, that it was friendly with the guys. So they're sending over some digestible plant-based proteins. And, you know, this is 2011. And sure enough, it's still so stigmatized that now Riley's like that guy. They take a protein out of the locker room. The hemp seeds are not NSF certified, all this bullshit. I'm like, come on, Jimmy, like, like, well, see, that's that's where I was going. That's where I was going with it. Like, what was the kickback? Were they saying like, what's wrong with this guy? Or a, l- a l- little bit, because uh, again, I'm like, you know, banging the drum around something that I yeah. believe to be in you know, a extremely viable resource. You know, we talk about the food and you know, and, and the medicine side of things. R- really, was what I was kind of banging the drum on. Um, but it was it wasn't an alignment, or not, not even was it an alignment. These guys just didn't know. There was just, just sheer ignorance around it, right? So yeah. if I'm trying to educate these guys, but without, without stuffing it down their throats, I'm um, just trying to educate them in a in a in a in a patient manner, if you will. Because I was like, all right, I'm not going to fight this. Take the protein out. It doesn't really hurt my ego. You know, it's just like it is what it is. I was just trying to be helpful. I get it. Yeah. You guys aren't there yet. But then slowly but surely, I started talking more about cannabis and more about CBD specifically because that was the compound that really helped, uh, you know, help me manage pain and help me reform my my relationship with cannabis and treating some of the concussion-related stuff. Again, high anti-inflammatory, neurogenesis, neuroprotective properties. So then the conversation seemed to be a little bit more um, digestible, maybe, I guess, for, for some of these old heads, I say, like the guys, the old school guys that, um, that really are stuck in prohibition days, right? They don't understand the science. They don't understand... They don't understand the nature of these medicines. So I'm feeling like I have to educate them. Right. And eventually, um, Brad Marsh gave me a platform, I guess like five, six years ago, he's the president of the Flyers alumni. And I got in front of all these guys, you know, it was like 50 of them. You know, a lot of them gone through substance abuse programs, right. Traditional substance abuse programs. So now I'm here standing up in front of them talking about cannabis as a, as an alternative fee healing or pain management, a tool. And, um, and, uh, and just educating on the plant in itself, the state programs, Pennsylvania's, New Jersey's, the federal farm bill on the you know, CBD stuff, and just kind of laying it all out there. And I got really good feedback, but I also got pushback because again, a lot of these guys, um, yeah. these guys that are quote unquote sober, they don't, the, the, the cannabis plant, no matter what molecule you're talking about, doesn't fit in their ideology and their philosophy. Um, so, and I get it, you know, I'm just like, okay, but I'm trying to educate them and and it's come full circle. I obviously started banging the drum around psilocybin, kind of naturally. That was the progression. And then, you know, Flyers Alumni Weekend. If we had played played the game last weekend, uh, Mark Recchi's getting it was inducted into the Flyers Hall of Fame. But then Paul Ongren of all, you know, again at one time probably my one of the largest supporters, been sober for 24 years. He comes to me at the event and says, like, yeah, I got this pain, and my wife started to dabble in CBD. And I just like struggle with it because, because I've been sober for 24 years. And I said, well, like, listen, like this, this is that, that's an issue you have to deal with yourself. Right. Because it's not the program or it's the pressure. It's an outside pressure. That's making you think that that's not truth. I mean, CBD is, is non-intoxicating. It's not psychoactive in the sense of getting you high. So if you're talking about just managing your inflammation as you get older and managing some of the grind of aging and, and the pain, like, this is historically what cannabis has been used for is pain management trait. And, um, you know, we're talking about a specific molecule, but it's, it's funny how, I guess where I'm going with it is how, how it's evolved from like straight up prohibition devil's lettuce. Like this is not for athletes to, 
this world that not only is it not is it, is it for athletes i mean i would say 95 percent of the players if not 100 percent of them are probably using some sort of cannabis-based product again cbd thc somewhere in between some sort of delivery system maybe a topical massage cream to a transdermal patch or sublingual or maybe even smoking or vaping it but nonetheless how much emphasis how much focus there is on recovery right i mean historically it would be like okay we grind the body we'll go for beers that was like that was their version of recovery is get up and tough it out the next day but now it's like these guys are so wise they're so with it um that that that's the name of the game like when i was coaching the phantoms guys were infusing their peanut butter and coconut oil eating at the back of the bus historically it was beers on the bus right yeah. you just like, drink until we fall asleep or pass out and we show up in albany or wherever the hell we we're going it, you know uh but now there was there was so much more mindfulness and and it's beyond that now like you guys are microdosing psilocybin before games so guys in the nhl now are microdosing psilocybin before the game oh 100 yeah like the every, every professional athlete now high level performer is doing that now like the night before the game or actually right no like like literally like two or three hours before the game explain what that does to a player what that does for yeah. a player so first of all, microdosing is a sub-threshold dose, meaning there's no classic psychedelic effects. So you're taking it like a daily supplement. You could think of like, you know, lion's mane mushroom or something that gives you some sort of energy without the stimulant effect. So the energy and the mushroom is very gentle. It's very soft, very calm and clean. When you take a sub-threshold dose, microdose, what's happening is it's getting you out of the mind and it's getting you into the spiritual heart feeling, right? So it gets you into the present moment flow state. So you're not worrying in the future. We're not worrying. We're not, we're not in the past. We're in the moment. And that's where, well, they say the zone flow state. That's where creators create. So it helps you get there and then and, and stay there. Less distractions, right? Less noise. The mind is our worst enemy, right? Yes, people that can't manage it. So the microdose just helps people or helps players, any product, you know, any sort of creative um, get in the flow state. Hmm. Um, so that's what's happening. So they're able to focus, be more concentrated. Be more in the moment, more present. Uh, again, without all the noise. The noise is still there, but it's just less. Um, it, it, it's less intrusive. Huh. That that's what's it, happening. So, and you're saying that most pro athletes right now are doing that before the game. Uh, I, I would say probably fifty percent of them. Oh, I don't know if you saw the clip of the All Star game with Michael Bublin. Yeah, that was great. That was awesome. Yes. Did you see that? Because I know, because I know, like a lot of those All Stars for sure are. You know, like just knowing from my network, and I'm you know working with some guys. Uh, myself um but like the running joke of like you know like oh i well, wasn't a microdose right you know like he's kind of joking out oh, blades of glory oh i realize i'm at the all-star game but it's a thing i mean high level performers from coders in silicon valley you know working with sure. dental surgeons anybody that like anybody really you could work a, work a nine to five and this could help improve your performance and productivity but you know the high-end you high-end performers are always looking for an edge they want they want they want to produce the highest level, and this is how get that. So that's microdosing to get the focus right. But now, what about microdosing? Well, not even microdosing, but just dosing for PTSD because that's part of the psilocybin effect as well, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Hundred percent, yeah. And that could be a combination of microdosing as well as going into a deeper dive, more of a macro dose, where you're with the larger doses, you're you're going more inward. So the more you increase the dose, the more inwards you go, and eventually. Eventually, you know, we did that, that productivity we're talking about, the higher level of production will eventually diminish, right? So, so the, now it's like working inwards. You're not going to really be able to, 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 to engage in, in the 3D world, if you will. So 
when you're going macro, like you're, 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 you're looking inwards and you're, you're working through your own demons. You're working through your own shit and, and traumas. PTSD is really just a response from some, some version of a trauma. It doesn't have to be capital T trauma. It doesn't have to be seeing someone blown up in front of your eyes or, you know, seeing, witnessing someone being killed. Um, it, it could be small T trauma. It could be, you know, a memory that's embedded into your nervous system from when you're four years old and your dad gave you shit in front of a bunch of people. And you've never, for you know, you never lost that memory and it somehow keeps being triggered by certain things. Um, so whatever that lands up being, um, you're working through your blockages, you're working through your traumas and, and you're, 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 you're making sense of them. You're making peace with them. You're allowing them to dissipate and let them go because, what happens if you don't address your emotional body and your, and your, and your traumas and your stuck energy, it just keeps festering, right? You just keep pouring, pouring fuel on the fire. Uh, we're emotional beings that we were, we were designed to express emotionally. That's why historically cultures dance, they sang, they move, they expressed, right? They create, we're creatives. And for, for some reason in the, in the Western culture, I'd say, but probably, I think probably since we've been colonialized, we've taken the spirit out of people and we, we haven't taught how to express properly. That's why we're in this jam right now. We're in a mental health crisis because humans have lost the ability to create and, and express. So historically, to move this out, you know, yoga is a great form of expression, dancing, all this other stuff. But humans have lost that. And now, you know, we're, they're leaning on plant medicines to help them move this energy out, suck energy out. And that's what's happening is it's moving this sucked, stagnant energy out of the body it's expressing it's you're purging it out and it, depending on the psychedelic you take it's some different versions of purging um but it's it's moving that stuck traumatic event out to some degree where you're making peace with it and it's no longer embedded in your nervous system so something that might have triggered it before no longer triggers it you've it's still there because you never your body never forgets and the memories it's a memory versus now emotionalizing that memory and your physical body taking on that response where now your whole body chemistry changes based on a thought or something you heard that triggered it. So that would be larger dose, but then the microdose can still support the macro or, you know, these are daily kind of like treated as daily supplements just to help get, get guys that have real severe PTSD to be less reactive, less reactive to the world. Because I think that's what happens is guys get so reactive to things outside themselves that, they become responsive and then they engage with violence generally, or, you know, just aggressive reactions to maybe what maybe is a non-issue. Um, so it's helping become, or, or in some cases it might ruin their relationships as an adult, right? Tom, because I know you've gone through that. And some, I might be coming a, I might be coming a visit. Right? I'm talking sure. about the memory of when, when your uncle was, was killed in the motorcycle. Accident yeah. And you saw the police escort your mom out. Yeah. That led to these abandonment issues that you're still dealing with. At 65 years old. So I'll, I'll let you jump in there. Well, you know, Riley, the thing for me is, uh, yeah, I talked to a lot of people uh, about, you know, expressing their feelings and opening up, you know, and, and talking. And then I realized once one day, uh, maybe Tom was here, I can't remember where it was, but uh, maybe I need to take my take my own <laughs> uh, advice and do it. So it made me think back when I was small that uh, I was playing lacrosse right outside of Toronto when we were at a tournament. And uh, my, you know, six years old or whatever, and I see my father talking to the police officer. He's you know, I can't know if you remember this kind of stuff, but you really want to know where your parents were during those games. So the game gets done. My father's not around. My mother's not around. I, I walk off the, uh, the court and uh, these four guys are standing around and their fathers and one's a coach and I really didn't know them that well. And, and they asked me, they said, you know, uh, Billy Hall, that was my uncle. 
he's the cool guy playing the guitar and the, driving the motorcycle and everything. So I panicked and said, no, I didn't know who he was. I guess I'm just, I'm scared to death. My parents aren't around. And the coach says to me, well, that's your uncle. And he just got killed in a motorcycle crash. And I think my mother is my mother's brother. So I think he just got, she got so distraught. My father said, I got to get her out of here and just left me there. But that was, I, and then we couldn't go home for a couple of days because we still had this tournament to play. And uh, I never thought about it too much until recently. Uh, and I just realized like how, how I, I remember like driving in the car at night, looking out the window, like, scared to death. And uh, and now I've been divorced twice in and out of relationships. And uh, actually Tom did say to me, at one point we're laughing about these relationships I get in and out of. And he goes, well, what's the common denominator in all these relationships? And uh, I realized it was me. Uh, so I've tried to deal with it, but I, you know, I, I, something I, interesting, really interesting listening to you talk about it because like part of me thinks, okay, stop talking about it. It's going to go away. Just don't deal with it. Right? The old school way. So you're saying that for me, I would, I would be doing the macro dosing and like get the demons out of uh, inside me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's the way I see it. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, it's suck energy, right? It's a, uh, you call that capital T, small T doesn't really matter. I mean, it's, it's still, it's, it's etched in your. Yeah. in your DNA now, right? And it's become, it kind of become a part of you. So I think part of it is like, they call it some bit soul retrieval. It's like, it's kind of like going back in your life and, and picking up the pieces where you've left some of your, your, your spirit. Right. And so that moment itself, um, ha has a bit of your soul in it. Right. It's Cause it's yeah. like your, your energy system is to some bit still there. So what happens is ju it's just like, it, it's just making sense of it. It's just like, you know, the, it, maybe there's forgiveness, uh, you know, because you, yeah. maybe you thought that your, your, your parents in abandoned you or, you know, or whatever yeah. like that issue. So it's kind of just having some closure in it and, and, and being able to move on ahead without that emotional connection to it, if that makes any sense. So it's still, yeah, never, no. it's not like you'll never, it's not like you're going to bury this thing and it's going to go away. But I, I think the biggest thing is that you're, you, cause what happens is we, we, we emotionalize past memories and, and situations and then our physical body takes on that energy. So if it's resentment, anger, you know, whatever low vibrational frequency it is, like that's our body starts carrying that. Um, so we want to sever that because we want to, we're trying to generate a high vibe body, right? And we, we have energies of gratitude and authenticity and, and love and peace, right? Like that's, that's like the, the high vibe energy that we're trying to generate. But it's hard to do that when we have our past that's haunting us. So it's really just kind of going back say facing it head on it's just all it's say just it's just like accepting it as part of life like it's unfortunate there's so many crazy unfortunate things that happen to people yeah. and the work the work i do man I've, I've i swear to god i've seen it all but just when i think i've seen it all you know there's just right. horrific things that happen to people and i've seen miracles like people that being able to work through stuff that you never imagined that you could work through i just find so, a piece in it you know yeah so you said the work you do so people come to you uh, and you guide them through this too. They, they don't still sit there doing psilocybin by themselves. You're guiding them through this whole process. Yeah. So we do. I do a lot of work in Jamaica. Uh, it's legal, unregulated there. Uh, we have, we cultivate mushrooms. So a lot of retreats we do down there. I'm down there, you know, every other month probably opening up in British Virgin Islands next year, next month. So larger groups, you know, larger groups, group settings. I can actually send you guys a, a documentary that we filmed in Jamaica two years ago. ESPN documentary is called yeah. Peace of Mind. Had uh, one of my former teammates, uh, Steve Downey, down there, and a football player, a boxer, but just guys going through different different versions of the same shit. Um, but yeah, group healing super powerful. In a perfect world, I think that's the way it goes. That's historically the way we we healed, right? And in, in tribes and communities. Yep. Um, so that version, and then depending on you know where the person is at, 
would sit with them, right? Hold space and um and drum, right? Working out some of the shit. I mean, and the drumming and and just, you know traditional you know djembe drumming, but also shamanic drumming is drumming historically. You know, Native Americans, all cultures use a drum to move out energy, suck energy. Uh, but I also teach yoga and, and so integration. So like, I don't like to just sit with people, right? Or yeah, or or you know, be a steward of the medicines. Like I'm, I'm more into helping these these individuals cultivate a, a lifestyle, right? Because what I've realized is doing this work is where we just become so disconnected to the things that are real, and that relationship to our bodies and our thinking and our relationships to everything, right? It's like reforming all relationships through the lens of love, and I think that the psychedelics help bring perspective to that. But like, we can't just take psychedelics and not do anything, right? We have to own our shit and we have to make honest change. And I think once you integrate both is where really where my, my, my real work is, is the mindfulness is teaching, say just teaching the fundamentals of thinking and, and, you know, breaths and connection, re reconnection to our bodies and reforming a healthy relationship to our bodies. Cause I was like most guys too, right? My relationship with my body was just lifting weights and looking bulky in a shirt you know and that that you know it's being stiff and tight you know where now it's like it's about energy it's about feeling good right i mean i want to wake up in the morning feel good i don't want to wake up in the morning feeling like hulk hogan like i did you know when i was 20 years old stiff as shit so it's just helping again all, all these things are are kind of pointing to the same north star it's kind of you know the, the mushrooms are waking up the body waking up the mind the nervous system the drum is you know waking up the body and the, and the cells and then you know, you breathe and generate some prana, life force through pranayama, breathing practices or yoga. And then it's just, it's just, it's, it's activating the, the energy within the body, right? That's right. I, I, I got to tell you, did you, did you ever think you'd be talking like this? When you were no, talking? never. No, yeah. never. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. I love it. It's fantastic. It's just, you know, I know how you probably were as a player, same as me. Now all of a sudden we're talking about mindfulness and all this kind of stuff and the words you're using. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. Really. So I'm proud of you. What, so do you have a company name? Well, so the, the, the mushroom company is wake that that's the one we do the retreats down in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And then like my, my, my personal mindfulness company is called Cote culture. And it's, so it's, it's mindfulness on its own. So just, you know, it could be youth hockey players, all mindfulness, no, obviously no integration of plant medicine. So it's the breathing, it's the grounding, it's the, the mindful movement. It's the rhythmic mindfulness. Um, just, you know, just coping mechanisms to, to get through the grind of life, but then also the pressures of hockey and sport. And then the say, say the same, the, the foundation of the mindfulness company, it also integrates into different, uh, psychedelic integration. So if we're doing post, um, psilocybin integration work, a lot of the same core pillars w- would be talked about, right? We're, tr- we're trying to give these guys a practice so they have you know, we have sustainable, legitimate coping mechanisms to get through, uh, the daily grind. Right. And it's coming simple things is just coming back to the moment, anchoring in the breaths, you know, when things get, you know, tr- troubled or a little bit, there's a little bit of tension in your lives and, and a little bit, the rigidness kind of comes in is just grounding in the moment, just being great, grateful, like how powerful just settling in for 10 seconds of gratitude can be for the nervous system, you know? the posture and everything that the chemistry follows. Right. And just like little things like that, that there's no awareness. We just get stuck in our ways. And we think that this is the way the world is. And it's all doom and gloom and the universe is out to get us. And we're just not working with the universe. Really. I know. How do people get a hold of you? 
Uh, d- d- different ways. Uh, I mean, you reach out through my my website, RileyCote.com, yep. through Instagram, you know, my social media outlets, uh, RileyCote32. And, and a lot are just uh, organic, you know, through word of mouth, you're just getting random text messages, emails, and, and phone calls because, you know, that just some there's momentum behind it. And it's like when people seem like they're, I don't know, it's just funny how it all works out. People are finding me in different ways. Seeing the SBN documentary, you just get random people reaching out. I don't want. To, I'm not going to say any names, but a player that we we know and Tom knows pretty well just said you essentially working with you has changed his life in, in a positive way. So that's that's important. The work you're doing is awesome, man. And just want to you know congratulate you on that. It is amazing, yeah. right, Riley? Like if I went back six or seven years ago and you started saying all that stuff, I would have gone, "This guy's nuts," right? But now you, I think I've learned to open up my mind more, get rid of the old hockey player mentality. And open up and learn new things and realize, yeah, this is this is real deal in weeks. But you're fantastic, seriously. Your knowledge of what you're doing and how you explain it is excellent. So great job by you. Yep. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Now you've got a podcast going too, right? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, we're uh, so me and uh, his name's Derek Settlemeyer, aka Nasty. He was the former equipment manager for the Flyers. Oh, Nasty Knuckles is the name of the pod, and I think we're 146 episodes deep. Flyer centric, just keep it light, trying to humanize the player. Don't get into too much of like, you know, the, the X's and O's and, you know, ripping on players. It's just more just bringing them on and, and sharing some stories, having fun. Did you get, did you get Eddie Hospital on yet? Not yet. No, he, oh. he's queued up though. Yeah. We, 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 team with, uh, with Eddie, so. we had him on. He's pretty good. He'll tell some good yeah. stories. Yeah. And rather you, you play in the, in the Brian prop charity event too. We saw you at that last year. You can play again. Yep. I'm still skating. Yep. Yeah. I'll play in that again. Uh, I'm not as skating as much as I'd like, uh, but um, maybe once every We've had a lot of interesting guests on, but I get that this is a very unique show here today. Fantastic. I've really got educated and really, I'm going to be talking some more. Maybe I need to get down there and get some help. Yeah. Well, I, I use me as a resource. Even if it's just picking my brain and, okay. um, yeah, I'd love to help wherever I can. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you very much. It's great to meet you. And, and again, like Tom said, the, the, the mutual friend of ours was just like a different person after we went to see you. So that was fantastic. So again, thank you very much for coming on the show and we'll probably have you on again too. I think we'll yeah, thanks, you someday. Please do. Appreciate it, guys. Wow, Tom. Uh, of all the shows we've we've done, that one um, that one was pretty cool, pretty powerful. Wow, that was life changing. Just listening to him. It's Riley Cote, man. He's uh, we laughed about it in the show too. Like. Hard to imagine when you're playing in the National Hockey League that speaking the way he used to be. Well, even for me, the way I've changed, but he's got a whole new, like a whole different level. Huh? Yeah, he's like what well, classically I used to call yourselves. He was a meathead. He was a guy who yeah. would, you know, punch and eat punches and fight and just be the, the amped up guy. And he's like, he looks like a Jedi Knight. You know, he's, you know, yeah. mindful and peaceful and talking about vibrations and psilocybin. And it's just an awesome turnaround. I mean, that's I the, know. that's like the, I think that's the most change we've seen in, in, from, in a yeah. player, from a player to a post player life. And the whole run of the show so far. Well, I had never met him before. And then our, our mutual friend had gone to see him. Uh, he gave me Riley's number. And we got on the phone and started talking. And uh, we hit it off right away because he started talking about how, you know, a lot of guys that are still, that you know, uh, in their 60s or 70s still are living their life like they're NHL hockey players. Yep. And you, they, yeah. They, they, they very often don't, they, they're very unhealthy physically, mentally. But the guys that tend to have moved on and said, listen, I was proud that I played in the National Hockey. It was great. But that's not who I am. That doesn't define me. He's clearly in that category. There's something called the death of ego. Basically, you kill your old self 
and you're reborn in this new self. You basically kill your ego. And I think a lot of these hockey guys have not done that. Yeah. That's cool the way you said that. Very nice, Tom. That was well, good. Thank like you. That. Yes. Kill, so say that again. You kill your it's ego. It's the death of ego. So you you're right. basically kill your ego. Your ego dies and you, you the old person you were is gone. And now you're this new person. You change. You metamorphosize into this different person. And I think to some degree you've done that. I mean, you don't do yoga, but... You, yeah. You know, well, it is interesting listening to him talk about the spirituality part of it too, that uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you are one with God or anything like that. It's just that you've just... I, I, you know, I, I, the way you describe it like this, the way our buddy said it was uh, just feels like they, he realizes that um, we, there's a whole other life after this life. Like, why are we worried so much about this life? Yeah, and it's it's. I think what I got out of it is he's. It's more more about focusing on the moment, the here and now, and like yeah. I, like he was talking about breathing and being being present and and you know getting through those those things. And and you talk about trauma and other things. They're just pretty incredible to hear him speak and to to hear his story and, and yeah. the knowledge that he's putting out there. Yeah, yes. the knowledge too, right? But he really taught himself. Uh, uh, this one that's fantastic that's great it really, yeah, really informed really uh just just it's so it's amazing again it's full change from a, you know a knucklehead yeah. tough guy you know getting the philly crowd amped up to this mindful spiritual person who's helping people in the in their lives and you know and, and, right. and get through these hard times so yeah it was he was awesome that was just a great you show know, you know do you think when we started this show we thought we'd have what we have as far as the stories you know, we called it full change but some of the stories like a rich pilon even you go back and look at him and the way he's changed his life large oh for guys. sure Yes, and, and there are some guys who are still stuck, um, and some, uh, but most of the guys have gone on to these incredible careers, that maybe incredible post-career lives, maybe none so much as Riley Cote, because, again, pugilist, tough. like, for instance, compare that to Darren Langdon. He's exactly the same. Yeah. He's just, he's just himself, and that's fine. That's a good thing. He's just like, yeah, I yeah. went home, I opened a bar, and here I am. I'm all cool. Yeah. Because, but, yeah, he no, seemed to have his act together, right? So he really didn't need to totally. change Totally. Yeah. No stress, no no regrets, no worries. He's like, yeah, I did yeah. that. That was cool, and here I am now. And this is what I'm doing. I'm back in you know in Newfoundland, and that's all good. But Riley Cote is a full. He's in a full change. He really is. I mean, that's a complete yeah. turnaround. And it was awesome to hear him. You know, I I only knew him as like this knucklehead flyer guy who was yeah. fighting everybody. Now he's like, again, I said it a few times, but he looks like a Jedi Knight. Got the long hair, the beard, and the, yeah. the outfit on. It just looks super cool. You know. Yeah, he does. Cool is a good word for him. He's a cool dude. Yeah. Absolutely, and doing much like a new age, you know, and and yoga, and and just this mindfulness, and you 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 work on your mindfulness, and you also mentioned now he talked a lot about spirituality and love, and you you said, and this is great, you said, you know, Tom, I'm just going through my phone and I'm calling people in my contacts yeah. for not to ask for anything, just to say hello and see how they're doing, and that's a really cool thing, and that's you being in the present, you know, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah, you know what, too, I've gotten much better at, like I make a point of saying to people that are important in my life, well, most of them are. Uh, that, that I'm really happy that they are in my life. I, I express yeah. that to people now. I never would have expressed that to people before. I hope they would have known that, but I, I realized, no, just say it. Like tell tell people that you you care about them a lot and you're glad they're in their life. So, well, yeah, I don't I I don't know. I didn't I didn't I don't know as much as Riley about this does, but I know a little bit about like frequency and vibrations. And apparently, yeah. gratitude frequency. And he mentioned it. The gratitude frequency really resonates at a higher level because you feel good when you're thankful to other people. It's something yeah. with the vibrations that it does. And I don't know enough, like I said, but you just mentioned it. You know, you tell people you're thankful they're in their lives and you feel better about it. Yeah. Oh, true. Know? Yeah. And isn't that the truth? I, I, that's the, one of the biggest things I've learned, like been, being kind to other people and doing things for other people just for the sake of doing it, or picking up the phone just for the sake of uh, picking up the phone and talking to them. When you get done with it or even in the middle of doing it, you're going, like, nah, this is cool. Like, I just feel great. Like, you feel great. I'm not asking for anything. I'm not, you're not yeah. asking for, we're just, we're just in the moment together and sharing a moment. And that's awesome. And that's, we need to do more of that, especially in a world today when everything is digital in your face. 
I mean, of course, listen to this podcast, and then after the podcast, then go and call your friends. I've got, I do have a complaint, though, okay? Because I know this is just an audio for the fans, but I can see the back uh, background there. You've got jerseys hanging up on the wall. I do not I see do. number two. I don't see a number two jersey. Right, right. Well, well, talk to somebody. Get me. Oh, Brian Leach? I think there's one somewhere, but what? <laughs> what? Listen, I'll put a Tom Laidlaw signed jersey up. Let's let's go. What do you got, do you got up there? Very back? No, I have I have Bernie Nichols, game-worn jersey. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have Chris Kreider that the Rangers gave me. Then my brother gave me a wonderful gift. My favorite player, as I said a million times, is Mark Pavlich, and he has a signed Pavlich jersey that's oh, on the wall. Wow, very nice. That's uh, No, thank you. The office is back together after the flood we had, but I, I'll absolutely put a Tom Laidlaw jersey on here. Please uh, no, send me one. Do you know anybody? You'll, you'll probably uh, give me number two. You'll probably take the Laidlaw off there and put a leech on the back. Put leech. Or park. Park, yeah, I know. <laughs> Brian Leach is funny, I'll tell you. I try to give him a hard time. But he comes back good. It's like, you know, he, what did he yeah. say one time? I said, sometimes about the number two. He says, yeah, we, there's a, somebody who's the second best. And he, he made it sound like he was talking about me, that I was the second best number two. And right in front of everybody goes, no, I'm talking about Brad Park. Ah, there you go. Yeah, Leach is, he's sneaky funny. He's like, yeah. you know, he's, he's very dry. And that's uh, that's great. And we'll, hopefully we'll have him on the show soon. And we yeah. can talk about the, you know, the third best number two left-handed <laughs> shooting defenseman <laughs> in Ranger history, Tom Leibniz. But I'll, let, know, it, yeah. I'll put a jersey up. Let's get one. Let's go. Right. Talk to the people yeah. at the garden. Yeah. Let's get on this, Jackie Di Piazza. Yes, yes, of course. And you can uh, stamp it. You can stamp it for me with your rubber stamp autograph thing. I never use that. Don't start that rumor. That that is just that. I did. So let's tell the story. I I did get a uh, years ago. I got a stamp made with my signature. So it's my actual signature. But I thought, okay, it's going to save time. And I thought, once I got it, I, thought, I can't. No, you can't. That's so bad. That's so bad. You just just sign the Tom Layla TL and just put it on there. That's not what it is, dude. I have a terrible signature. Hey, you didn't practice that when you had these NHL dreams. You were like, oh, I'll be signing autographs all day. You know, you know what? Some guys really like some guys really pay attention to their signature. And I didn't yeah. want to be rude to the fans. I want to get but yeah, I never that wasn't something I ever thought about. No. Gotcha. But some of them have like if you ever if you ever see like the Gordie Howe autograph, it's beautiful penmanship. It's so it's well written. Bobby Hall's as well. But the guys say are just like just scribble. Yeah, it's you know, kinda lame. I never write it. I go to write things now. So I terrible because we type all the time, right? We're texting and typing. And I don't know about you. As I've gotten older, though, when I look at my notes that I write down, I'm like, "Holy cow! I can't even read this. I, this penmanship oh, yeah. is terrible." Oh yeah, so it's, awful. So it's becoming a lost art, which is a shame. But That's you know, not a lost art. Mindfulness is not a lost art, Tom. And and mindfulness and being in the moment, being present, like Riley Cote was. He was amazing, and that was a great show. Seriously, I was getting. I was just. I looked up at the clock and we were like an hour. And like, where did it go? I would, I could have kept talking to him for another hour. We got to get him on the show again. He's very, yeah, he was fascinating for me too. I was very excited to, to hear his story. Yeah. And that was a great episode. And if you like that episode and, and others like this, please like us, leave us a review on Apple. The reviews have been great. We have listeners in Romania who are faithful. Please, you know, we want to hear from you. Email fullchangepodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you guys. So please send an email, go on Tom's Facebook page, leave, drop us a note, you know, anything you can do. We, we want to hear what you guys have to say and who you want to see on the show and what you like, what you don't like. The reviews are, we're very grateful. They've been overwhelmingly positive. We appreciate that. But tell your friends about the show. Spread it around. Would somebody ever write a negative review about us? No, all the time. Well, not about us, I don't think so, but it happens all the time. Oh, okay. You know? But not for us. Ours are perfect. Good job. That was a great show, Dave. Great show. All right, grasshoppers. Thank you for listening. We had a fantastic show. We'll see you next time.